From Gimlet, this is Reply All. I'm PJ Vote. And I'm Alex Goldberg. Alex? Yes? We're trying something. We're trying a new segment this week. Um, uh, I'm always a little nervous about trying new segments because what if we try it once and then we're like, we're never doing this again. Then we'll never do it again. It'll be fine. All right. We're trying a new segment, everybody. We may never do it again. Yeah, we'll see. Um, so uh, the segment, we're going to call it Deep Dive. Uh, here's the theme song. And the idea is that one of us will talk to somebody who's just gone way deeper into some weird, mysterious pocket of the internet than you or I is really capable of going. Yeah, and then we'll talk to them and be like, how, how exactly did you do this? <laughs> um, so this week, I spoke to this reporter whose articles I've really enjoyed. Her name's uh, Ashley Feinberg. She writes at Slate. And I think it's safe to say that, like, politicians live in a low-level fear of her. What What is your... Do you have a beat? Uh, I mean... Yes, but like it's this is the part of the problem is anytime anyone asks me that question, like I the easy answer is like internet culture and politics, but it's really just sort of anything I think is like bad or funny or weird. My favorite thing about Ashley is her ability to catch politicians in what are basically their most unguarded moments on the internet. And it's not like she's using hacking tools or any kind of specialized technology to do this. She's just really good at finding embarrassing secrets that are sort of hidden in plain sight. It's It feels like kind of like a superpower to me, but it does piss a lot of people off. I mean, there's uh, some chorus of, how dare you invade this person's privacy, and uh, this isn't journalism, this is digging through garbage, blah, blah, blah. Which, like, A, yes, like, the internet is garbage, so, like, it is digging through garbage in, like, that capacity. <laughs> but anything you can find out about a powerful public person should be public knowledge. Ashley's first major political catch was in um, 2017 when then-FBI director James Comey gave a speech where he said that he had a secret Instagram account. I have an Instagram account with nine followers. Nobody's getting in. They're all immediate relatives, and then one daughter's serious boyfriend. I let him in because they're serious enough. And so Ashley's just like, hey, thanks for all the clues that might help me find your hidden account. I'm going to go try and find it now. Okay. So the first thing she did was go on Instagram and start looking at James Comey's relatives. But most of those accounts were private, and it's really hard to get any information from a private account. Right. Luckily for Ashley, the way that the Instagram algorithm worked at that time was if you attempted to follow someone who had a private account, Instagram would be like, hey, I see that you tried to follow this person. Let me recommend to you a bunch of people that they follow. God, it's like you're following like... Uh, if, if if somebody followed, like, you and your wife, it'd be like, you should probably follow their kids also. Right. So Ashley requests to follow James Comey's son. And then Instagram immediately recommends a bunch of other accounts, mostly people with the last name Comey. But there's one account that it recommends, which has no profile picture, the account is locked, and it has the name Reinhold Niebuhr. And Ashley was like, that's a weird name. And she looked it up, and apparently... James Comey did his thesis on this theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr. So then she's like, okay, this, I'm pretty sure this is James Comey. But then she starts wondering, like, huh, I wonder if this is his username anywhere else. And then I searched on Twitter for that same name, and there were, like, three or four accounts that used that username, but only one of them that was faving tons and tons of tweets about the FBI and James Comey. <laughs> Long after she published the article, James Comey actually confirmed that the account was his, which was very gratifying for Ashley. The interesting thing in that was just that the FBI director hadn't 
performed like OPSEC well enough to cover his tracks on Twitter. I mean, how long did it take you? A couple days? A day? Uh, like, I think it took me like four hours to like... Four yeah. hours to find the head of the FBI's secret Twitter account going on just the follower account and who he follows. Like, that's impressive. Yeah, meeting that challenge was very satisfying. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. So it was a pretty big deal when she found Comey's secret accounts, but the downside was like, he wasn't tweeting anything, his Instagram was private, um, but Ashley's next catch was a little more rewarding. What happened? So Mitt Romney was the subject of an article by McKay Coppins, who writes for The Atlantic. Oh, I actually, actually saw this Ashley catch. This one was really good. So this catch started with this McKay Coppins article that basically said, like, Mitt Romney is now sort of like, he's like a bit of a rebel because he stands up to the Trump administration and is willing to sort of speak his mind. Uh-huh. But, and I read the article, I remember it. And I was just like, ho-hum, fine. Yeah. <laughs> fine, McKay, great article. But Ashley noticed something really valuable in that article that everybody else missed. So at one point in the story, Romney tells McKay Coppins, just as like an aside, I have the secret Twitter account, quote, I won't give you the name of it. I'm following 668 people. Why do they always do this? Swiping at his tablet, he recited some of the accounts he follows, including journalists, late-night comedians, and athletes. And of course, to Ashley, this is all gold. This is, like, all valuable information. Those things just seem like very obvious challenges to me when I read them. Partially, I was mostly just shocked that McKay Coppins wasn't basically following up with, like, a barrage of questions to Romney about what that account was and... What he used it for, basically. So, again, she was like, well, I'm going to go look through Mitt Romney's family. Because probably Mitt Romney's following family members on Twitter. And his eldest granddaughter was being followed by an account that had, it followed about 700 people. Yeah. And you may remember this. The the name was um, Pierre Delecto. (laughs) (laughs) Why Pierre Delecto? The thing is, it, it, it sounds very much like a name Mitt Romney would choose as a fake name. And uh, one thing a bunch of people said or mentioned was that when he was, like, doing his missionary work, he was in France. And Pierre Delecto is just sort of like a semi-French way of saying Pierre Delight. And the thing about Pierre Delecto is that he actually spends most of his time defending Mitt Romney. Like, there was this incident where Jennifer Rubin, who, who's an opinion writer for The Washington Post, criticized Romney on Twitter and wrote, quote, Inside Romney's Trump strategy, his strategy is non-confrontation verging on spinelessness. And Pierre Delecto responded, Jennifer, you need to take a breath. Maybe you can then acknowledge the people who agree with you in large measure, even if not in every measure. I mean, what's funny about this is even though you can tell that he's annoyed at being called spineless, 
Um, and even though he can say whatever he wants because it's an anonymous account, he's still kind of like prim and proper. Like yeah, he's, he's not, not being, like cursing. He's not cursing. Or, yeah. Um, and so Ashley reaches out to Romney, gets no response, and so she goes to publish the article. I was a little worried about that one just because I... I don't know, it seemed like I had had too good of luck so far that I was like sure that this one was going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, pretty quickly afterwards, uh, McKay apparently called up Romney and asked him if it was him. And Romney's only comment was, c'est moi. <laughs> c'est moi is, is a genuinely cool response to give. Like, which, like, it's very depressing for it to come from like Mitt Romney, but I mean, I guess good for him. So in the wake of this, Ashley starts getting tons of tips from people who are like, I think I found the secret social media account of blank politician. Oh, like I found like Marco Rubio's like uh, battle.net login or whatever. (laughs) That is so specific. But yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, And one of those tips leads to what is like my personal favorite of her investigations. Okay. Um, She got a tip that said, I think that one of this year's Democratic presidential candidates has been writing and editing their own Wikipedia page for the last decade. Which, like, one of Wikipedia's foundational rules is don't edit your own page. Yes, in a the frequently e- violated rule. I mean, it's not a high crime. <laughs> it just comes off as really tacky. Anyway, so this tipper says to Ashley, hey, you should check out this particular Wikipedia editor who goes by the username Streeling. Streeling. Yeah. This person had been basically making edits, and they were the creator of the original Pete Buttigieg Wikipedia page uh, before he was even mayor and not someone that someone would probably think to create an account for unless they were either his biggest fan or himself. What was he before he was mayor? He was running for treasurer, and someone tried to create a page while he was running for treasurer in Indiana, and it got deleted because he was not notable, and they put up a very uh, respectable fight trying to prove that he was, in fact, notable. But the Wikipedia editors are like, sorry, no, he's not notable. But then Pete Buttigieg wins the South Bend mayoral race. So suddenly he's notable. And so the next day, Streeling like springs into action. He adds Pete Buttigieg to a list of notable Rhodes Scholars. Six minutes after he does that, he creates a Wikipedia page for Pete Buttigieg that is just a heavily footnoted parade of every accomplishment he's ever made in his short life. And then six minutes after that, he leaves a note for other Wikipedia editors saying like, hey, I know that this page might read a little bit like a resume. Uh, I just want to let everybody know that I'm not affiliated with the campaign. It's like the disclaimer of a person who is definitely involved in the campaign. I am not a cop. <laughs> I am not an officer of the law, but I would like to buy a quantity of drugs from you. Illegal ones, please. And then Streeling adds Pete Buttigieg to the uh, Wikipedia page of notable Buttigieg's. <laughs> There's a Wikipedia page of notable Buttigieg's? There are five. Who are the others? Uh, let's see. Uh, Buttigieg. It's a Maltese surname. Um, oh, there's more now. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, there's no notable eight, votes. There's 11. Wow. It's mostly Maltese and Australian politicians and Pete Buttigieg. I don't know what I was expecting. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, at this point, Ashley is investigating Streeling, this editor, and she thinks like, it is very much within the realm of possibility that this that this was all done by just someone who is a big fan of Pete Buttigieg. But there's some edits that are made by Streeling that feel so 
specific and personal to Pete Buttigieg that they at least had to come from somebody close to him. Okay. Like he edited the page for this musician named David Wax. But Ashley was digging around and she realized like, oh, David Wax? He just happens to be one of Pete Buttigieg's best friends and played at his wedding. Okay, that's more suspicious. And it turns out that the screen name that this person's using to edit on Wikipedia, the name Streeling, that itself is a clue. Can you explain the significance of the username Streeling? So, yeah, I mean, at first, like, I couldn't figure out what it was. And then uh, if you, like, Google Streeling, there's, like, a bunch of old Irish poetry sort of comes up. And uh, I think the word streel is used... Yeah, is used in Ulysses to refer to uh, a woman in one of the episodes. And like Pete Buttigieg says that Ulysses is one of his favorite books of all time, which Ashley thinks is just another point in the, oh, it's definitely an inside job column. And so Ashley actually went to the Pete Buttigieg campaign with all of this evidence and said like, hey, is someone on your campaign doing this? And they were like, "Uh, we don't know what you're talking about. Streeling, whoever that is, is not connected to our campaign in any way. Honestly, like it... I don't think that if he had just acknowledged that it was him or that it was a staffer he had instructed to do this, like, I, I don't even know that I would have necessarily published it because I, I don't really, it, it, it's not, it wasn't that interesting, like, the things he was doing. Like, the really interesting thing to me was that he denied it. And, like, I feel like that was, like, more revealing than anything else was it's on the, the page. It's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that made this denial seemed even less credible to me, was that Ashley found what to me seemed a lot like a smoking gun. What was a smoking gun? It, it's it's just this little breadcrumb that had been dropped way back when Pete Buttigieg was mayor. And it's this photo that someone tried to upload to the Wikipedia page. And it's just a typical politician headshot of Pete Buttigieg. Okay. So the other Wikipedia editors actually deleted this picture because they said, we don't have explicit permission from the person who holds the copyright on this picture to use it on his page. So we can't use it. But there are these mirror sites that will basically just crawl Wikipedia or whatever website they're a mirror of and like pick up the content that is added to it. And uh, they don't get everything. But there was one that had like miraculously saved the whole file. And so all the original metadata was on it. She downloads the picture. Yes. Looks at the metadata of the picture. And it contains... All of the information about, like, the camera that took it. Meaning, like, it's not a copy. It's not a compressed picture. It's the original photo. It's the original photo. And there, in the metadata of the photo, it actually says the name of the photographer. And uh, then I contacted the photographer who told me that he had only given the login password to download it to the campaign. And so, like, there's no other like way that someone could have gotten it unless they had gotten it directly from the campaign. So if it's not associated with the campaign, we need to believe in a world where the world's biggest Pete Buttigieg fan uh, totally watergated their offices, stole a headshot. <laughs> <laughs> like they've, they've broken it and got completely rogue, but only in order to update his Wikipedia page. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> it's so weird. To me, like it gives the feeling of like, it feels different than Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney was like a person tr- like trying to let his hair down a bit. Yeah, that's the other thing. You have a little more sympathy for the guy who's like, I just want to be able to yell at people sometimes in a very polite way than the guy who's like, I, or a close associate, put myself on the notable Rhodes Scholars list and now I won't admit it. It's just like, if it is Pete or someone on his campaign, 
in this particular attempt to control how he appears to the public, he inadvertently said something kind of unflattering about himself. Like, I don't know, that he's kind of a tryhard. Yeah. I should say that we reached out to the Pete Buttigieg campaign for comment, and they continue to deny that Pete Buttigieg or anyone involved in the campaign had anything to do with this Wikipedia account. In your ultimate deepest dreams, who do you hope to find and, like, what do you hope to find? Uh, I would love to find uh, Don Jr. stealing valor, which is, like... Uh, <laughs> stealing valor means pretending to be in the military or a former mi- or a veteran when he's actually not. Yeah, we, it's, we a, it's the single it. greatest uh, conservative crime you can commit in right. that, that side of the world. But not even that anymore. I, don't, I honestly don't know. Like, the the thing is, like, the more it goes, kind of the more attracted I am to, like, the stupider, smaller stuff, just because, yeah, it just seems like those are getting harder to find, I think, but... Why do you think they're getting harder to find? I think people are more careful in general and sort of a lot more aware of the photos they're posting of themselves and, like, what is in the background of the photos they're posting of themselves. Like, one thing I really enjoy is when politician or any prominent person posts a photo of their computer screen sort of by accident. You can see like the tabs and like with the windows that are like hiding in plain sight, but that doesn't happen that often anymore, I feel like. Right. Those are like the single greatest things that could happen and like they're getting rarer and rarer, which like terrifies me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Would it help for our listeners to send you tips? Yeah. I mean, if I, I love all sorts of tips, even if they suck. Sounds good. Yeah. If you suspect you found, like, Jimmy Carter's photo bucket or whatever, you can send a tip to Ashley Feinberg at ashley at slate.com. Coming up after the break, untold horrors. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This summer, click into cordless power. With Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear debris with the 40-volt jet fan leaf blower. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, the Home Depot. How doers get more done. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the show. Okay, so Alex. Yeah? Something that I think people don't totally realize is that kind of like for every story that we air on the show, usually there are a bunch that we pursued that just didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And usually we don't talk about those stories because there's always this like slim hope that somehow we'll find a way to make those stories work. But today I wanted to make an exception to that very reasonable rule. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> I, I want to talk about last year's big failure. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, it's not your fault. I don't think it's anybody's fault. No, I feel like it's my fault. I don't blame you for what happened. Okay. But what did happen was, actually, rather than just re-explaining the premise, let me just play what we recorded back then. Um, so what you're about to hear is from May of 2019. Okay. So, Alex. Yeah. Do you remember the movie Get Out? Uh, yeah. We didn't see it together, did we? No, we did not see it together. Okay. So I didn't see it. And it was very frustrating for me to not see it because it was like, you know when there's those things that like everyone sees and everybody talks about and it becomes almost like the dominant metaphor in everyone's brain afterwards? It was zeitgeisty. It was zeitgeisty. And I like seeing zeitgeisty things. Like I like participating in culture and like figuring out what people like and why and figuring out how I feel about it. And I completely, completely, completely did not watch Get Out. Mm-hmm. You know why. Well, I've, I've seen two movies with you, I think, uh-huh. in the time that we've known each other. One, uh-huh. one was Attack the Block, yes. which, for people who don't know, is an alien invasion set in the housing projects of London. Very good movie. Very good movie. And Drive, which is Ryan Gosling oh, driving around and falling in love and stomping heads. Okay, movie. And during both of those movies, mm-hmm. you were in the fetal position fetal position i think is a slight over uh uh, you had your knees up to your chest i guess that's kind of a fetal position with your fingers fanned out in front of your eyes doing what my mom does when i drive which is going oh (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, ah, that's more or less true and these are not like super scary movies no attack the block is like a is like a caper yeah and drive 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 is like a pretty bloody drama neither of them are scary Scary. So I'm an adult man that can't watch scary movies, like at all. Like I'm terrified of them. I derive like no pleasure from them. And like even movies that are sort of scary adjacent, uh, it's tough for me to watch. Why? I think some people enjoy them and some people don't. And I super don't enjoy them. And I always remember never enjoying them. Like not just being scared by scary movies, but being scared like of seeing scary movies. Like one of the earliest memories I have, you remember the movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what happened was, I think this was the first movie I went to go see with my dad. Okay. I was like four. And we got to the theater. We sit down in our seats. Trailer, first experience of movie trailers, comes on for Edward Scissorhands. 
and you were out of there. I was terrified. I loved theater. I think I was crying in the lobby. My dad was like pretty frustrated because like he'd gone to take his kid to a movie and his kid was doing like a walkout and I refused to go back in. And he was like, it's a trailer. It's not part of the movie. Edward Scissorhands will not appear in this like Rick Moranis family caper. But at that point, I remember that in the trailer, there's a giant ant because they get shrunk. And I was like, I, no, I don't want to see this. It's got a giant ant. It's too scary for me. Wow. It's like my earliest memory of like truly like my dad realizing that he had raised a weak son and like feeling embarrassed about it. And I don't think he took me to a movie for a very long time after that. So basically, like my whole life, it's been this like wide path of culture that I've had to avoid. And it's very frustrating. And it's been more frustrating because of Get Out. And then what's the new one? Us. Us. Like it just feels like the like for a while, it's just like, who cares? Because scary movies are not that they're dumb, but like I can miss them and I'm not missing much. And if it's really scary, I'll like read the Wikipedia entry and read the plot summary and just like have a nightmare from that. But it's fine. But like you have nightmares from Wikipedia entries. I have had nightmares from Wikipedia entries. For what? That movie with the scary goat and the witches. Oh, you mean the witch? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got one from that. Anyway, last year I got really frustrated about the get out stuff and I wanted to, I started thinking about like whether I could change, whether it could be different. Mm-hmm. And I read this article by Corey Sika, who is also, who's a writer, but who also is scared of scary movies. And he found this professor who had studied this, like both why people like scary movies, why they don't, and how to start liking them if you want to. The thing he said that was like really surprising to me was that he was like, you can, you can change. Like, it's just basically like exposure therapy, like the same way some people are scared to fly on airplanes. So they like make them sit on a fake airplane and pretend to take off. If you watch scary movies over time, you can go from a person who hates them to a person who enjoys them. Hmm. So I wanted to talk to that guy. He died. All right. But like, I wanted to start to make myself a syllabus of like starting at very unscary movies like starting at like 1920s like black and white like frankenstein movies or whatever and then maybe moving up to like cheesy uh like really really cheesy schlocky movies that aren't going to scare me and like see if i can just like in a very cowardly way like inch into the pool to get to a place where i could just go see like get out or us like in a movie theater because right now the only way i can watch even kind of scary movies is i watch them on my laptop in a small window during the day so I can like tab away from it if it's too scary. So my understanding is that exposure therapy is like is like exposing you to things that you are scared of on the understanding that it will be safe. Is that true? Yeah, like on the understanding that you will be there with that that there is not you are no harm is going to come to you. Huh. I have a question for you. Okay. So I'm wondering if if I can be the doctor who guides you through your exposure therapy. Dr. Goldman, the spooky therapist? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I promise no harm will come to you. What do you mean when you say no harm? You won't be injured. <sighs> okay. I think I can make it happen. You can scare me into okayness? I can scare you into not being scared at Get Out. Okay. If I could just watch Get Out and enjoy it, that would be like a a, a thing. All right. I'm going to regret this. I could already feel the regret.
Okay, so that was last May. And at the time, the plan basically made sense. You know, you love horror movies. And so the idea was you would take your love of horror movies and create, like, a terror exposure program for me. It was very scientific. It was very elaborate, is what I would say. Very quickly, it left the realm of just watching scary movies and it turned into you creating scary experiences <laughs> that were very bizarre. There was, like, we were handcuffed together at one point. There was fake blood. There was uh, spooky nighttime excursions in the woods. But none of it worked. Yeah. I think the thing we realized, though, is, like, basically the problem is that as long as it's, like, Dr. Alex administering the experiment, it never felt like anything could happen. It never left the realm of just being, like, you hanging out with a friend. Yeah, exactly. So the reason we're talking about this is we had the idea recently of, like, oh, our listeners could have access to some kind of spooky locale. Like, if we know somebody who is the landlord to, like, a notorious murder house or, uh, you know, lives in an abandoned penitentiary. Or, like, if the Crypt Keeper listens to this. I'm sure he's a huge fan. Um, don't do a Crypt Keeper impression. Uh, <laughs> I know that you mentioned that only to do that. <laughs> Reply, scowl. <laughs> Hello, kitties. <laughs> I love the Crypt Keeper so much. <laughs> Crypt Keeper, if you're out there, Alex Goldman loves you. Anyway, we, we wanted to broadcast this to basically ask our listeners, if you have access to a very scary experience or place or whatever, like if you're the spookiest haunted house in the whole world, Please get in touch with us can because we want to try to do this again. Can I tell you the one location that didn't work out, which I really wanted to work out so badly when we were trying to come up with a scary place? Yeah. There is a an island in the middle of – it's. I think it's in the bay just north of Brooklyn and there's a lighthouse on it. And apparently before the Revolutionary War, the British would take their colonial prisoners there and lash them to the rocks and let the tide drown them. Oh, my God. And they let you sleep there. And I was like, I really want to go do this because it sounds horrifying. That like sounds horrifying. Trapped on an island in a lighthouse. Why didn't we do that? Because I called the guy and the guy was like, yeah, I'm going to be there. And there's probably going to be other people there, too. And I was like, well, can we just do it ourselves? Like, you can just drop us off there. And he was like, no. And I was like, well, is there I'm trying to scare my friend. And he was like, no. Mm -mm. Wow. Nope. <laughs> so if you are out there listening and you have access to your own spooky lighthouse or you're the Crypt Keeper or whatever, send us an email, replyall at gimletmedia.com, subject line, spooky times. And if we can find a successful or series of successful scary experiences, we'll try again. Reply All is hosted by me, PJ Vote, and Alex Goldman. We're produced by Shruti Pinamanani, Fia Benin, Damiano Marchetti, Anna Foley, Jessica Young, and Emmanuel Chochi. Our executive producer is Tim Howard. We're mixed by Rick Kwan. Fact-checking by Michelle Harris. Our intern is Lisa Wang. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. The theme for Deep Dive was composed by the multi-talented Alex Goldman. Additional music help from Mari Romano. Matt Lieber is a long walk with a good friend. Also, we have just opened up hiring for our summer and fall internship positions. 
If you're interested, you can find a link for more information in the show notes. You can listen to the show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.